Welcome to the Equipping You podcast, where our mission is to equip Alliance pastors and leaders to live spiritually healthy lives and lead healthy churches. Equipping You is a ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Equipping You podcast, season two, episode five. And we're coming to you today just miles from gold mines in the Rocky Mountains. And that's what we do here. We mine nuggets of gold for ministry leaders. I'm Terry, church ministries leader for the Alliance. And I'm Alan, church planning leader in Eastern PA and the coordinator for church planning in the Northeast region for Alliance Church Planning. And AJR. Your friend is here, too, producing for us. I think you called yourselves gold diggers, which is not really a good thing. Oh, so. uh, well, we meant it in a little different way than that. So uh, great to have you along, AJ. We will uh, be covering a pretty serious topic uh, today on the whole issue of domestic abuse with a good friend of mine, Chris Moles. You did some study on domestic abuse in your master's program, Alan? I did. Uh, to me, I think the biggest thing that came out of that is how poorly the church is prepared to actually deal with it well. And so I'm really looking forward to this episode with Chris. I think it's going to be really helpful to our pastors and church leaders. Yeah, I think we underestimate uh, what's going on uh, in the lives of our church people. It's an overlooked uh, area, and sometimes we don't deal with it because we just don't know how. We don't know what to do about it. But uh, Chris has uh, been very involved and studied uh, this topic uh, and is one of the most articulate, intelligent, funny people I know, a great friend of mine, church planner with the Alliance, Eleanor, West Virginia. So without uh, further conversation, we invite you to uh, put some cream in your coffee, lean back, relax, and listen to this episode of Equipping You Podcast. Here we go. And it's our pleasure to welcome to Equipping You Podcast uh, today, my good friend, Chris Moles. Chris, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I've been listening to the inaugural season of Equipping You, loving it, and uh, excited to be here today. Thank you for doing that. We hope others are listening as well. We like to allow our podcast listeners to get to know our guests, so uh, if you'd take a minute, to, Chris, to tell us a bit of your background, where you grew up, how you came to faith in Jesus— and how you got connected to this crazy group of people that we call the Alliance. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm just a country boy from West Virginia. Country is cornbread, we like to say. That's why Terry likes you so much. Yes, I'm ambitious and delicious. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I actually grew up in um, churches that sociologists study, believe it or not, um, something called Appalachian Mountain Religion. So I grew up in, in kind of that realm of uh, holiness meets uh, necessity churches. When coal companies would move out, the churches kind of banded together. And so my background was very um, theologically diverse, people just kind of surviving together and worshiping together, a, a mix of you know legalism, but then also some really rich theological um, truth. And so when I found the Alliance, it actually happened when I was in college, I was serving as a children's leader of a small church plant, and it just happened to be CMA uh, in Ohio. That was my first exposure to the Alliance, had never heard of them, but it didn't take long for me to uh, find a lot of uh, kindred spirits there and a lot of folks that 
uh, and, and truth that I resonated with. So when the Lord called me into church planting a few years into my first pastorate as a youth pastor, uh, the CMA was the first uh, group I called. And I believe Terry uh, Smith may have been the first person in the Alliance I dialogued with about uh, joining the movement. And, and you so still was... came in. That's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> so that was going on 20 years ago. Wow. Time flies. Wow, it sure mm-hmm. does. Well, yeah, you're definitely a fun guy. I can tell that already. Uh, yet today we are tackling a tough topic with you uh, because the Lord has blessed you with a great amount of knowledge and uh, ability to deal with the, the area of domestic violence. Uh, so what stirred your involvement in that to begin with? Well, it, it would have to be God's providence, or depending upon your theological leaning, it might be my greed. I, I was uh, working in community corrections part-time at the time uh, as an educator, working with drug offenders, and an pr- opportunity presented itself to be a co-facilitator in a batterer intervention group, which was uh, court-ordered sentencing for men who used domestic violence or committed domestic violence crimes. I was asked several times if I would consider being a facilitator for that group, and, and I said no every time until they told me what they would pay me per hour. And then I said, I think the Lord's calling me into domestic violence prevention. I wish it was a, a much more you know, light from heaven story, but that's how it started. And then what God did from that point forward uh, has just been astonishing. And how he's using us and, and my family in this area has been amazing. And I really think I'm a better husband, father, uh, pastor, neighbor, because of the years I've spent working particularly with abusive men and on behalf of victims. Wow. So uh, Chris, describe to us some of the various faces of domestic violence and talk to us about what's at the root of uh, domestic violence. Sure. So I say that uh, abuse, domestic abuse, is first an abuse of power that's manifested through selfishly motivated patterns of behavior intended to exercise or maintain control over one's partner. And so there really isn't a certain group that falls victim uh, to domestic abuse per se, socioeconomic, race. There doesn't seem to be a distinction, even from within the church and outside the church. But what does distinguish it, I think, from other sins is how uh, an individual uses what I would say is a God-given advantage, uh, and they use it or abuse it in such a way um, that they control another person. And so it's really this weird dynamic uh, between power and subordination, or what the Bible might call oppression. And so that's really what I think highlights or distinguishes domestic violence from maybe other sins is just the power uh, differential and how it's used against uh, one partner. Hmm. That's some good, concise uh, information. I appreciate that. So how prevalent is domestic abuse in our communities and in our churches? You know, what are the stats? And, you know, how is it in terms of like men and women acting on it? Yeah, so uh, it is far more prevalent in our culture than I think we would care to realize. Now, this is becoming more more significant now. People are becoming more aware, I think. I get asked a lot, you know, is domestic violence on the rise? I don't think it's on the rise. I don't think people are committing more acts of domestic abuse, but I do think the culture is becoming more aware, thanks in part to uh, things like Me Too or the exposure within pro athletes or uh, people that are kind of in the public eye. We're becoming more aware 
of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. It's estimated that between one in three and one in four families are going to be affected by domestic violence. And women are far more likely to be victims than men, although there are male victims. Generally speaking, when you think about abuse, either sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, men are more likely to be victims of other men. So what I, what I tend to say is, even though there are male victims of female violence, 85% of victims of domestic violence are women. 95% of emergency room uh, visits related to domestic violence are women. So I tend to say, especially within the church, that this is a men's issue. And I think if men uh, were to stand up and say, we're no longer going to tolerate this, we're going to draw attention to it, we're going to protect and love our sisters, I think we would see a huge reduction in the problem. Uh, and even though there are women who use violence against men, men's use of violence is so significant in the culture that I'm devoting the majority of my attention and work to addressing that. I often say if we can end men's violence against women, I'll be happy to take up the cause of women's violence against men. But let's uh, first things first. And so uh, that's why we address the hearts of men, which is kind of our little uh, thesis that we operate on, that the uh, best means of reducing violence against women is addressing the hearts of men. Yeah, mm. good word. That is a good word. So physical abuse is a very clearly verifiable area where verbal and emotional abuse might be a little harder to verify. How do you distinguish when these things are happening and uh, it, how do you deal with them? Sure. So I, what I like to do, Terry, is I see domestic violence as a construct uh, that it contains several different tactics or different uh, avenues of use. And so, again, I'm looking when I'm interviewing a man or I'm working with a family, I'm looking for a pattern of, uh, of abusive behaviors. And so for me, emotional and verbal abuse are, are very connected to the physicality. So for me, I don't necessarily have to have a physical incident to say that this is abusive, although it does help as far as if you're making a case, I guess. But really, I'm looking for a pattern. Uh, several years ago, and this seems to help illustrate it, I was teaching on this very topic in Indiana. Now, you guys have already highlighted that I'm from West Virginia. And so I was in Indiana, and I was on the, the highway. I was driving through uh, the back, the back uh, roads. And I saw something I'd never seen before. I came over a, a small rise and I saw an entire train, a locomotive, front to back in motion. Now, I told my wife about it uh, and I was excited. And she said I needed to get out, get out more. <laughs> but I had never <laughs> seen a whole train moving. In West Virginia, there's too many obstructions, yep, right? You yep. see parts of the train mm -hmm. because of the mountains, the rivers, and sure. the bends. So I say with domestic violence and this work, we're often seeing just parts of the train. And so one of our roles as counselors, pastors, uh, interventionists, is to gather data uh, as those parts of the train pass. We rarely see the whole thing in motion. So we try to connect patterns of, okay, he does call her names. He also has punched a hole in the wall. He's also made threats. He's also been sexually coercive. Tying all those together really build that umbrella of abuse so that we can say, okay, this is an abuse of power over the entire relationship. And so while you can distinguish the tactics, I think it's a lot better to tie them together. That way, if you only attack, let's say, or address one form of abuse, one tactic, 
then the abusive person is very happy to do that because it can keep you away from the rest of his behavior. So I say, for instance, if he only says I have an anger problem and we address that, we run the risk of creating polite abusers who commit respectable sins. Mm. So we have mm. to see the whole picture wow. uh, and put together the whole piece of the pie so that we can properly address what's really happening, which I say is happening in the heart. I'll also add that if emotional, verbal, mental, psychological abuse is present, it's reinforced by the, the notion that physical abuse is possible. So even if physical abuse hasn't happened, that fear of physical assault is still present. And we could argue you know, about the, the nuances of that, but to me, the threat of physical force is violence as well. And uh, it can keep people immobilized or under control. And I've had many a man say to me, well, I don't wanna do anything physical because that will get me in trouble. If he can get what he wants through legal means of abuse, he'll tend to do that as opposed to crossing wow. the quote-unquote line. Yeah, sobering. Wow. A pastor has a woman that attends his church. She comes to him uh, and says, uh, I'm being abused. Where does the pastor start? Well, prayer's the first work. How's that for an alliance statement? Woo! There you go. There Fire! Fire! <laughs> But obviously, I think the first step happens even before a disclosure is made, fellas. Mm. And that is uh, one area in which the church has really been failing. We are um, reacting to issues of sexual, physical, and domestic abuse rather than working to prevent issues. And so I think education is the first step. Churches and pastors really need to, be need to become more aware of the dynamics and impact and then have um, at least an idea of where they're going to be going or who they're going to be referring individuals to. Now, when a disclosure does come, I think it's important that we also know what our state and local laws are. I know for most of us, myself included here in West Virginia, I'm not a mandated reporter when it comes to domestic violence. I am for elder abuse. I am for child abuse. But with domestic abuse, uh, I may do more harm than good by reporting a disclosure, uh, it may put her at more risk. Uh, and so it's important that you know your state and local law. There are some laws where, or some states, excuse me, when clergy are required to report domestic violence. For most of us, that's not the case. Uh, and so the first thing I want to do is know what I'm obligated to do, because I want to have a be a good Romans 13 type of citizen. And then the next thing I think is when you receive a disclosure, the first thing is listen and really take seriously what you're hearing. I've had too many pastors who go into investigative mode. Uh, they'll often use Proverbs 18, 17. Uh, the first to come forward seems right until someone cross-examines them. And they'll say, well, you know, Proverbs 18, 17 says we need to get both sides of the story. Of course, Proverbs 18, 18 says, if you still don't know who's telling the truth, cast lots. And I don't have any pastors rolling the dice. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's important that we understand that Proverbs are principles. Yeah. And, you know, chapter 18, verse 18 is really about leaving the outcome to God. So let's slow down, listen, and then I would say believe what you're hearing. Um, and then uh, ask the victim what they want to do next. If uh, they're not willing to report or go to the authorities and you're not obligated, the safest thing you can do may be to honor and respect that. Um, certainly if there's a high lethality or you feel like someone's life is at risk, then absolutely reach out for help. But 
they may just be testing the waters to see if they can trust you. So there's probably a thousand and one different responses mm. that pastors can have. That's why education and conversations like this and conversations at a deeper level, I think, are necessary for us to be able to fill our way out and understand that each of these cases are distinct and unique, and the response to each case may be distinct and unique. But first, I would listen, believe, and then offer hope and help in accordance with what the victim's requests are. So you have a chapter in your book that's called The Heart of Domestic Abuse, Gospel Solutions for Men Who Use Control and Violence in Their Home. You have a chapter entitled uh, Hope for the Violent Man. Can you walk us through what that hope looks like, how that abusive man can change, the role that the gospel plays? And then you use these terms in your book, power over and power under. Can you kind of unpack those uh, terms for us? Sure, I would love to. Um, And while I do um, participate in victim care, uh, my primary ministry work is with abusive men working alongside churches and communities to hold them accountable, to educate them. And there is a a segment, even within the Christian world, uh, that has a problem with even the the belief that I have that abusive men can change. And uh, so the very first thing I think we have to establish as uh, ministry leaders, pastors, individuals stepping into this work is to answer the question, does the gospel offer hope to violent and abusive people. And uh, I happen to believe that the gospel is available to everyone, Amen. that Jesus did, in fact, die for violent people. Preach it. Um, Amen. In fact, very clearly, the cross that Jesus hung on was designed and intended for a violent person. Uh, Barabbas was not, you know, just a sweet fella that found, was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, <laughs> the, the very act of the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection is designed to to restore God's enemies, right, to mm-hmm. atone for that mm-hmm. in such a way that we can be friends, to, to have a relationship with God. And so we have to establish that first. Do you believe that the gospel is available even for the most desperate and wicked among us? And I happen to believe uh, that that's the case. Now, with that, the gospel has a lot of facets to it. Obviously, redemption is not simply about easy believism. Uh, Redemption involves a a great deal of uh, acknowledgement, confession, repentance, and with gross violations, things that are so anti-Christ, like violence, and in particular domestic violence, that I think that repentance at at the initial level, and then what we call the evidentiary level, seeing it played out, the fruits of repentance, are really essential to seeing the gospel lived out. Now, I use the term power over and power under in the book, and then in my my teaching and my life to really symbolize what I think Jesus is calling all believers to. And what tends to happen, and this is really rampant in the church, fellas, especially among uh, those of us who may be to some degree within the uh, camp of complementarity, uh, how that plays out. Of course, there's some that are kind of more on the patriarchy side, and I think there's some difficulty there. But within that middle ground, which a lot of Alliance folks are in, in every theological aspect, that middle of the road, uh, there are still some folks who are using aspects of headship and submission to justify oppression and subjugation. Mm. And I really want to challenge that by acknowledging that I think there are aspects within the home where God has designed husbands to fulfill certain roles. However, 
this idea of power over is really inconsistent uh, with the teachings of Jesus. I'll use Matthew 20 to illustrate that. You know, that's the story of Mrs. Zebedee. Zebedee's wife comes to Jesus and she says, hey, when your kingdom comes into its fruition, when, when the kingdom comes, I want one son on your right hand and one on your left hand because Mrs. Zebedee understands how power works in the kingdom of the world. There's somebody in charge. There's his second hand and his third person, right? There's the president, the vice president, the speaker. There's Captain Picard, Commander Riker, Commander Data. There's always <laughs> this hierarchy. Go and Star Trek Jesus, on us. What's that? Go and Star Trek on us. Star Trek. Anything to prove the point, right? So Jesus calls the disciples together, and he says, that's the way the kingdom of the world operates. He, he actually says that's the way the pagans use power. They lord it over. And then he gives this interesting uh, imperative that I think if it applies to those disciples, it applies to all disciples. And, and that is, if uh, you want to be great, you have to be a servant. If you want to be first, you have to be last. So Jesus comes along in this aspect of power and leadership and authority, and he turns everything on its head. And so when we're dealing with abusive, destructive uh, power over men in our churches, congregations, or communities, I believe they need a redeemed view of power and authority. And in fact, that's the way Jesus operates. If you read through uh, Philippians 2, um, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be clung to or grasped, but instead he emptied himself. He became humble. And so he models it, he teaches it, he illustrates it, and he calls us into conformity to it. So when we read passages like Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3, we really need to read them through a Jesus hermeneutic that calls men to power under servant leadership, as opposed to this kingdom of the world, pagan power over dictatorship. Mm, that's good. Very clear and uh, straightforward for us to hear that. We appreciate that so much, man. So something has been dealt with and a man is finding some hope, you know, uh, in the gospel mm -hmm. through Christ to change from being a power over to being a power under uh, type of man uh, and a disciple of Christ. Can we talk a little bit about the difference between forgiveness and restoring trust and how this plays into a woman being able to come back with a man who's been abusive? Sure. I, I actually think this is one of the areas that we need to grow from a leadership perspective, from a pastoral perspective. We need to grow in quite a bit. Probably, guys, the, the biggest problem that we face in our ministry and working with churches is uh, pastors, elders, leaders who rush reconciliation rather than really engaging in authentic aspects of forgiveness. And what I mean by that is when a person is confronted, especially an oppressive power over person, it is not uncommon for them to show contrition, some form of remorse. But you have to really test that and press against that uh, to make sure you're not dealing with just, I'm sorry I got caught or I'm sorry I'm experiencing consequences, but really understanding the distinction between worldly sorrow, right, and godly sorrow. And that takes time. And what I've seen a lot with churches is uh, a husband confesses, he acknowledges, and then he wants to push for reconciliation. And the church values marriage, as they should, with such a high priority that they'll often pressure the partner, the spouse, the victim, to reconcile prematurely. And so one of the things I like to talk to with churches is the importance of repentance to the process of forgiveness. 
and how repentance is not always instantaneous, but it can um, take time to observe. You know, forgiveness can be granted without reconciliation taking place. Uh, I think it's in maybe Numbers 14. I'm not sure I get the address right. But, you know, the children of Israel gave the bad report, and then God uh, gives them consequences, right? He forgives them, but they still have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So forgiveness doesn't negate consequences. Uh, David, if you take a look in uh, 1 Samuel 11 and 12, um, there, the, the uh, instance with Bathsheba, David abuses his power. He forces submission. He covers up with murder. David fits all the major categories of an abusive and oppressive person. Uh, and yet when he comes to the confrontation with Nathan, the thou art the man discussion, and he repents, it doesn't negate the consequences. Psalm 51 is beautiful, and it shows us David's heart and God's love and his forgiveness, but it doesn't negate the consequences. So I think it's important that we remember and we wrestle with forgiveness, but then also with the consequences. And rebuilding trust is part of that, depending Mm. upon the extent of the abuse as well. I often use Ephesians 4 to uh, illustrate that to my guys. When is a liar no longer a liar? Well, according to Paul, it's when he becomes a truther. And obviously, you don't stop lying and immediately be known as somebody who tells the truth. It takes time. First, you have to put off falsehood and then speak truth with your neighbor. In order to be a truther, though, your neighbors have to witness you telling the truth for a period of time. When's a thief no longer a thief? Well, it's when he's known as a generous person. There's a middle ground there. He has to stop stealing, get a job earn some money, give it away on a regular basis. So when's an abuser not an abuser? Well, it's when he's known as someone else, as supportive, as encouraging, as respectful. And that doesn't happen in after one confrontation or after a week of separation. Sometimes it takes a long period of time to see that. And I wish I could say it always leads to reconciliation. But sometimes abusive people have put the relationship on nuclear alert. They've, they've pushed the button and they've destroyed it. And they have to own their responsibility in that. So reconciliation isn't even the goal. Transformation is the goal. And then we can talk about reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Great stuff. Good. Very helpful. So uh, this is happening in churches, obviously. And uh, although I think at times we just don't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we maybe... Uh, turn a blind eye to it, but what kind of ministries can churches put in place that can help prevent domestic abuse? Yeah, so some of the things I would recommend, I actually think youth pastors and youth leaders have a great opportunity to just talk about healthy relationships at the teen uh, dating level Mm. and uh, really promoting healthy relationships and God-honoring relationships at the youth level. Uh, The other thing that I've found helpful over the years is for pastors to be very bold about condemning the sin of domestic abuse. Mm. Uh, Most of us are already preaching about marriage and family once a year. Why not, in the course of that sermon, take five, ten minutes to really highlight that we believe that every form of domestic abuse is a demonic distortion of the way God designed marriage to be, and we will stand with victims of abuse and stand against perpetrators for the glory of God uh, and conformity to Christ. Wow! Simple statements like that can really put abusers on notice and give victims hope. Now, if pastors, if you go that route, you need to be prepared. I've never seen a church or a leader 
make a public statement condemning abuse that was not followed by a heightened level of disclosures. Mm. So you need to be prepared with a ministry response. And that's why it's important to have discussions with your team before you make public statements so that you have uh, counseling options in place for, for victims, you have support group options in place, and you have something in place that's going to confront and hold the abuser accountable. Uh, and that takes time. So that's one of the things that we do uh, at PeaceWorks is uh, try to educate churches and pastors and, and resource them in a way that they can be prepared for that. And then the, the best thing, guys, is to uh, listen uh, and believe and be prepared to respond with the, the hope that only the gospel can provide. That is some super stuff, straightforward, and I appreciate it. You've been really helpful today. And we know, even in addition to the book that Terry mentioned, you have other resources available. So where can our listeners uh, find those resources? Sure. You can uh, head over to chrismoles.org. That's uh, my website, obviously. I have a couple free things on the website that might be helpful to the listeners. First is a blog. I publish a blog weekly. And then I have a podcast, the PeaceWorks podcast, that uh, has a new episode every week. Not as professional as equipping you, but it's, uh, it's a good <laughs> podcast. And uh, I, uh, I speak quite frequently around the country. And then uh, I have a couple pay-to-play options, a couple things that are uh, behind a paywall. I have a membership site called PeaceWorks University uh, that has tons of resources for leaders and then I have uh, a couple other options like coaching groups and things. But all of that's on the website. And uh, one thing I would love to see, I love the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, that's my tribe, my family. Most of my time is spent within the Reformed-esh world, Presbyterians and Southern Baptists. I love them. But I would love to spend some time with uh, Alliance folks. So, uh, yeah, reach out to me. I would love to uh, work with some Alliance churches. I have not had the privilege of doing that in this work but I would love to engage more with my own uh, tribe. Yeah, so Alliance uh, leaders, contact uh, Chris and uh, uh, get him into your area, get him into your church, and uh, let him help you help other people. So, Chris, it's been fun to watch uh, God work in your life and uh, lead you in this direction, and you bring a great deal of passion and clarity to this issue, and, and it's a very important issue. So thanks so much for what you're uh, doing and for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to uh, be with us today. We really appreciate it and mm -hmm. uh, pray God will continue to bless and, and expand uh, the impact of your, uh, of your ministry. So thanks much, friend. Oh, thank you guys. It was great being with you today, man. All right. You know what I always say, keep the faith. Keep the faith. Yeah, you got it, man. Take care. Well, hey, Chris gave us some great stuff uh, today, Alan. And uh, what'd you take away that uh, you think would be helpful for pastors and leaders? Well, I mean, he sure did give us some great stuff. I think some practical ideas for being proactive rather than waiting till it happens uh, was a, a good takeaway. And uh, not to underestimate how much it's happening in our churches. And in addition, being able to stand with a public statement in front and say, we are not going to allow abuse to happen and how that can give hope to victims. I thought that was powerful. Yeah. So we hope you as uh, pastors and leaders will uh, take a look at some of Chris's uh, stuff at chrismoles.org and uh, PeaceWorks, uh, some very helpful resources for you. Thanks for joining us on Equipping You Podcast for this episode. We look forward to having you back next time. Until then, 
keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.